The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. Just a quick warning. This episode contains discussions about sexual assault, the murder of a child, graphic descriptions of mortal injuries, and brief mention of animal abuse. Please use discretion when deciding whether to listen. In the winter of 1974, 23-year-old Renee Wickland was happily married to her husband, Jack, and the two were raising their one-year-old daughter, Shanna. They lived in a cute one-story home that sat on over an acre of land, lined with evergreen trees in a perfect rural town where nothing bad ever happened. It was a time when everyone knew their neighbors by name and considered them friends. No one could have imagined the horrific events that would take place in the coming days and have a ripple effect on their lives for decades to come. Three lives would be savagely taken, leaving behind a crime scene so gruesome, so vicious, that even the most seasoned law enforcement officers would be affected by it for the rest of their lives. The unspeakable crimes caused outrage that would be the catalyst for changes to the legal system and to victims' rights. This is Jamie, and you're listening to Murderish. Join me as I walk you through the case involving Renee and Shanna Wickland and Barbara Hendrickson. takes us to the town of Clearview, Washington, a small town in Snohomish County, located on the east side of the Puget Sound in the west-central area of the state, about 30 miles from Seattle. Clearview is encircled by countryside, covering approximately four and a half square miles. The city gets a significant amount of rainfall, and it snows four months out of the year, which lends to the lush greenery surrounding all of the homes. In the 1970s and 80s, Clearview was an even smaller community just outside the main town, which was nothing more than a few stores and repair shops along Interstate 9. It was quiet, safe, and often described as a place straight out of a Norman Rockwell painting. Tragically, that idyllic imagery was shattered in the spring of 1982 when the mutilated bodies of two women and a child were discovered inside of a home in the picturesque town, forever changing the fabric of the community. It was Wednesday evening, April 14, 1982. Don Hendrickson had just finished watching the nightly news when it occurred to him that it had been over an hour since his wife, Barbara, had gone across the street to check on their neighbor, Renee Wickland, and her eight-year-old daughter, Shanna. For a few days now, Renee was sick and Barbara had been checking on her and her daughter. That morning, Barbara helped to get little Shanna off to school and then made sure Renee was comfortable in bed before promising to return later in the afternoon to make her some jello. Dawn remembered that Barbara left the house at 4.20 p.m., taking with her a thermometer and his wristwatch so she could check Renee's pulse. Don tried to reassure himself that everything was fine and that he was overreacting. But after the second edition of the nightly news flashed onto the TV, he realized it was now after 6.30 p.m. and Barbara was still not home and had not called. With a knot growing in his stomach, Don decided to walk over to Renee's house to ease his fears. He made his way across 180th Street Southeast, down Renee's driveway, and up to the front door. He knocked several times, but no one answered. Don looked through the window and saw that none of the lights were on in the house, even though Renee always kept most of the lights on at night. His anxiety grew. Even with the lights out, Don was able to see that the rear sliding door was wide open. He hurried around the side of the house to the backyard, leaned into the open door, and immediately heard running water coming from the faucet at the kitchen sink. Don entered the house and shut the water off. In that instant, he realized that the house was absolutely still. There was no movement, 
no voices, no signs that anyone was inside the house. He wondered if the women had gone somewhere, but quickly realized that didn't make sense. Barbara would have called, and Renee's car was in the driveway. Don turned on the lights and saw that a kitchen chair was lying on its side. Nothing else seemed disturbed. Then, as Don stepped into the living room and looked down the hall, his entire world was shattered in an instant. Barbara Hendrickson was lying on the hall floor, on her back, with her head facing toward Don. There was a gaping wound in her throat, and blood had flowed like a river from his wife's body, circling her head and running outward for 18 inches, forming a halo around her matted hair. The strap of her purse was still slung over her right shoulder. Don knew that he was too late. His wife was dead. He immediately used the living room telephone to dial 911 and begged them to send help. Don could not bring himself to check the rest of the house or to stay with Barbara. He stepped outside to wait for help to arrive, a decision that saved him from finding the remaining horrors in the bedroom down the hall. The Clearview Fire Department were the first to arrive at the scene. Don took them to Barbara's lifeless body. Visibly upset and near tears, he informed Lieutenant Spaulding and Chief Eastman that Renee and Shanna were probably still in the house. Spaulding and Eastman continued down the silent, bloody hallway. They walked slowly, coming to a stop in the doorway of a bedroom. Complete shock and terror overcame them both. There on the floor, not two feet from them, was Renee Wickland. She was completely naked, laying on her back, with her nearly severed head resting at Spaulding's feet. Her arms were bent at the elbows, with her hands placed on her breasts. Her legs were spread apart. A sheet was half on the jumbled bed and half pulled off, covering the lower half of her right leg. Her arms and legs were covered in blood. Renee's face had been beaten into a mess of broken flesh, its craters of mangled skin filled with pools of blood. Just like Barbara, Renee's throat had a gaping wound. Her thick, dark, and congealed blood no longer escaped from her body. Stepping past Renee, the two men entered further into the bedroom and spotted Shanna's brown hair. Lying between a wooden chest and the mattress, hidden by mounds of clothing, the small child was lying face down and there was a massive amount of blood soaked into the carpet underneath her neck. Shanna was unresponsive and cold to the touch. The men carefully made their way back to the kitchen, where Eastman called the Snohomish County Sheriff's Department. Both Spaulding and Eastman would be forever haunted by the vicious scene they had just stepped into. And for the detectives who would arrive shortly, things would get much worse as they unraveled the gut-wrenching truth about the brutality of this tragedy and the fact that it should have never happened in the first place. Renee Louise Ehlers was born in Jamestown, North Dakota on February 20, 1951, to Alan Ehlers and Hilda Wagenka. Renee had one younger sister, Lauren, as well as two half-brothers and a half-sister, from her parents' previous marriages. Al, as Renee's father was called by friends, worked for the railroad for many years before moving the family to the North Dakota countryside and starting a farm. They lived a modest lifestyle, but by all accounts, the family was quite happy. As a child, Renee was competitive and seemed to have limitless energy. As a teenager, she focused that energy and joined the 4-H club where she won multiple special achievement medals. Renee loved animals and had a horse named Star, as well as a pet raccoon named Chico. She usually wore hand-me-downs and often made her own clothing. She enjoyed sewing, cooking, and worked hard to achieve good grades in school. In seventh grade, Renee took up the flute and, as with everything else she did, she excelled as a musician. From 1966 to 1969, she attended the International Peace Garden Music Camp to hone her skills. And while attending Jamestown High School, she was selected as their drum majorette. Renee marched at football games, town parades, and performed at the Dakota Days Festival in Rapid City in 1968. She also studied field conducting at the prestigious Casavant Drum School. After graduating high school in 1970, 
Renee was recruited by Valley City State College as a majorette and flutist. During summer break after her first year of college, Renee visited her half-sister in Washington and fell in love with the Puget Sound area. She got a job and decided to stay permanently. Renee had grown into a beautiful woman, and friends often compared her to famous cover models. She had a slim build, brown flowing hair, flawless skin, large brown eyes, and a wide smile. Soon, she caught the attention of a car salesman named Jack Wickland. Jack was 14 years older than Renee, and their romance was Renee's first real relationship. They were married at St. Peter's-by-the-Sea Church on February 18, 1973, just two days before Renee's 22nd birthday. They bought a small, one-story, three-bedroom house amidst the evergreen trees just outside of Clearview, which Renee decorated with brass farm tools that she had brought from her childhood home. Six short months later, on August 20th, their daughter Shanna was born. The relationship didn't last, though. Renee and Jack would be divorced by Shanna's third birthday, and sadly, the mother and daughter would be dead just a few years later. Renee was only 31 years old at the time of her murder. Shanna inherited her mother's physical characteristics. She had beautiful brown hair and large, almond-shaped brown eyes. Like her mother, she also enjoyed playing the flute, and like her mother, she loved animals. She and Renee had an Afghan hound named Alex and a cat named Sammy. Shanna and her mother regularly attended Shepherd of the Hills Lutheran Church, where Shanna was affectionately known as the Little Missionary because she always brought friends to church with her. Because Shanna and her mother found themselves alone much of the time, as Jack often traveled for work, they grew especially close to their neighbors Don and Barbara Hendrickson, who lived just across the main road. Dawn described Shanna as a fearless little pumpkin and thought she was extremely special. Shanna was very smart, energetic, and loved gymnastics. She attended Cathcart Elementary School, where her teachers found her to be well-behaved, well-liked, and a good student. Shanna was only eight years old when she was murdered alongside her mother. Barbara Jean Bullard was born on December 12, 1930 in Seattle. She married Donald Hendrickson on February 28, 1948, at just 17 years old. They had a daughter, Peggy, born on October 8 that same year, and a son, Daniel, born in 1952. Barbara and Don moved their family to the quaint Clearview neighborhood in the mid-1960s and met Renee and Shanna in 1973. Barbara, though 20 years older than Renee, became one of her best friends and confidants. The two of them often hung out together, talking over coffee and cigarettes. Their bond was special. Barbara was like a surrogate mother to Renee and a third grandmother to Shanna. Barbara was 51 when she was murdered inside of Renee's home. As news of the murders spread throughout the community, neighbors huddled together, trying to console one another, unable to fathom what happened. Parents held their children tighter, and wondered if they would ever be safe again. One neighbor told reporters that she was terrified because she didn't hear anything that would have suggested such brutality was taking place next door. Not one scream escaped the walls of the Wickland home. Although I've recently started getting out of the house more and getting back to normal, it's been a little harder to get back to feeling normal. It's so important to take good care of your mental health, but I know that many of us have been so overwhelmed and haven't made this a priority. Over 50% of Americans struggle with their mental health, and if this includes you, you are not alone, and there is a great resource to help you start feeling better. Talkspace makes it so easy to get in touch with a licensed therapist with whom you can schedule live video therapy sessions and you don't have to leave the house. With typical therapy, you have to make an appointment for a future date and go to them for the therapy session. With Talkspace, there is no waiting. After you sign up, you can begin speaking with a therapist the same day. With Talkspace, 
I can literally take my therapist with me wherever I go because all sessions take place on my phone or computer and from whatever location I happen to be in. You can get couples or individual therapy and get any necessary prescriptions. In the Talkspace app, you can send and receive unlimited messages to and from your therapist, who's there to help you with anxiety, depression, relationships, and so much more. Start feeling better with a single message. Match with a licensed therapist when you go to Talkspace.com and get $100 off your first month with promo code MURDERISH. That's $100 off when you use code MURDERISH at Talkspace.com. I live in my yoga pants. I run errands in them, take Zoom calls in them, and occasionally, I actually work out in them. Point being, I cannot imagine having to wear uncomfortable work pants ever again. And now, I don't have to. Beta Brand makes the most comfortable, well-fitting, and on-trend work pants. I will never go back to wearing work pants that dig into my sides and make me want to burn them as soon as I get home from work. Beta Brand's dress pant yoga pants are such a great innovation. They totally feel like yoga pants, but they look like stylish and professional work pants. I've been wearing my skinny fit dress pant yoga pants for a long time now, and recently I added a pair of cropped pants to my collection. They have a high-rise waist and I ordered them in a really cute and unique mosaic pattern. I love the zippered side pockets. They're perfect for holding my favorite lip gloss, ID, and credit card when I want to ditch my purse. Beta Brand launches new styles every week, and right now, my listeners can get 30% off their first order when you go to betabrand.com murderish. That's 30% off your first order for a limited time at betabrand.com murderish. Discover what it's like to be comfortable and confident all the time. Go to betabrand.com murderish for 30% off. The triple murder investigation was handled by Snohomish County Sheriff's Department. Deputy Doug Pendergrass arrived at the Wickland home at 7.07 p.m., just eight minutes after the fire department, and he was accompanied shortly thereafter by two additional deputies. Fire Chief Eastman briefed the deputies on what he saw inside the house and also advised them of some information from Don that could be pertinent to their case. Though he was barely able to hold himself together, Don had remembered that about eight years earlier, Renee had been raped by a man at knife point inside her home, but Don could not remember the man's name. Both Renee and Barbara Wicklin had testified against the man during the trial, and he was sent to prison. According to Don, the man had vowed to come back and kill the women for testifying against him. He was the only person Don could think of who had reason to hurt his wife and Renee. But due to the nature of the crime, it was likely the man was still in prison. At about 7.15 p.m., Detective Joseph Ward arrived on scene, followed by Detective Rick Bart and eventually almost the entire detective unit for the sheriff's department. Deputy Pendergrass relayed the information about the previous attack on Renee as well as his own observations from inside the house, saying, There was so much blood. He was obviously deeply affected by what he had seen. Detectives Bart and Ward moved through the house carefully and systematically. Bart took photos and Ward took notes of everything as they went, starting from the sliding door onward. The detectives noticed that the sliding screen door had a bent frame, and the glass sliding door was knocked off of its track, suggesting great force was used to open it. In the kitchen, Bart and Ward observed bloody footprints, an overturned chair, a drinking glass with dark stains on it sitting on the countertop, and what appeared to be blood on the faucet handle at the sink. As they made their way towards the hallway, they observed blood smears and spatters all over the walls, possible footprints on the hardwood floors, and scattered clothing everywhere. Both detectives were deeply shocked by the brutality and the viciousness they observed. According to Savage Vengeance, a book by Gary C. King and Don Lasseter, Detective Bart would later tell a journalist that it was a horrible mess, the worst I'd ever seen. I'd been in the military, but nothing compared with this. We would go in a room where they were, then we'd have to come out and just sit for a while, talk about it, 
then go back in. Detective Ward echoed those statements, saying, It was the most shocking crime scene I've ever seen. The number of bodies, the amount of blood, the damage to the bodies, the killer made Renee suffer horribly. Next, Bart and Ward began recovering evidence. They believed that Renee had been sexually assaulted, so swabs were taken and preserved for future testing. They also noted a bloody impression of what appeared to be a sneaker sole on Renee's right leg. Someone had apparently stepped on Renee after she was on the ground. The detectives observed that Barbara was missing part of a fingernail, possibly broken during a struggle. They located and recovered a fingernail on the floor in the dining room, indicating that she and the killer possibly met in the dining room, and she was then dragged or pushed down the hall where she was killed. The detectives had an extremely difficult time when it came to processing Shanna's body because she was so young. They carefully turned her over and their hearts broke as they saw the deep knife wound on her neck. Blood soaked her sweatshirt and covered her face. They also realized that Shanna was wearing sneakers and the sole matched the footprint found on her mother's leg. This meant that Shanna most likely tried to run away and stepped on her mother while trying to escape. Detectives and deputies conducted interviews with numerous neighbors, as well as with family and friends of the victims. There were several reports of a strange man in the area that afternoon. In the majority of witness statements, the man was described as tall, having darker skin with afro-like hair and a beard or mustache. He also seemed intoxicated because he was unsteady as he walked. The man was seen carrying a bundle or a bedroll as he walked away from the area and into the nearby woods. Several witnesses also reported seeing a suspicious orange or red vehicle, similar to a Ford Torino, backed awkwardly into the woods near the Wickland home. Outside Renee's house, on the ground in the backyard, a small gold chain and a metal stick pin were found. Detectives believe the items came from a jewelry box they found on the floor in Renee's bedroom, the contents of which had been emptied and thrown around the bedroom. In addition, several 4-H medals were found along the roadside, not far from the murder scene, one engraved with the name Renee Ehlers. A canine deputy and his dog, Ace, arrived around 10 p.m. Ace picked up a scent in Renee's backyard and began tracking it enthusiastically, leading his handler exactly where witnesses observed the strange man earlier in the day. Barbara's daughter, Peggy Ann Stein, was interviewed at 10 p.m. Peggy said that her mother had told her a story about Renee recently being pressured to give up some of her work to a fellow employee. Renee had been working as the executive assistant to the owner of several beauty schools. Supposedly, Renee did not give up the work, and she believed that a man was following her because of it. Renee believed the man was from Portland and had an interest in some of the schools for which she worked. The incident frightened Renee and also made Barbara and Don concerned for her safety. Renee's boyfriend, Glenn Douglas, was also interviewed. Glenn had last seen Renee on Sunday, April 11th, when he visited her at home. He tried to call her that afternoon at around 5.30, but got no answer. When asked if he knew anyone who might want to hurt his girlfriend, Glenn mentioned that she had been afraid of a man named Pissarro, who was a financial consultant from New Jersey. Apparently, she had kept him out of some business in Clearview, and he was upset about it. Glenn also recalled that Renee had gotten some threatening phone calls, but she didn't recognize the man's voice. When asked about the man who sexually assaulted Renee previously, Glenn had no idea what the detective was referring to. Apparently, Renee had never told him what happened to her. By the time the crime scene was shut down at 3.30 a.m., the detectives had developed leads on three possible suspects the man who was sent to prison for assaulting Renee eight years prior, the man Peggy mentioned had been following Renee, and the man named Pissarro from New Jersey. Dr. Clayton Haberman conducted the autopsies on all three of the victims the morning of April 15th. Detectives Bart and Ward were also present to photograph and collect any evidence from the bodies. 
As Dr. Haberman began with Barbara, the detectives collected her clothing and jewelry. She had one earring in her left ear. The right earring had been ripped out. Dr. Haberman listed Barbara's injuries as a massive incision to the front of the neck, which severed the carotid arteries and the back of the mouth, including the tongue, soft palate, side and back walls of the throat and the tonsils, as well as cutting into the vertebrae. Exsanguination or bleeding to death, manual strangulation prior to death, and blunt force trauma to the scalp and face. Renee did not have any clothing to collect, however, she was wearing a thin gold chain around her neck. It was almost missed because it was covered in the bloody mess of her injuries. As noted by Gary C. King and Don Lassiter in their book, Savage Vengeance, examination of the massive trauma covering her entire body revealed savagery almost unimaginable to the sane human mind. The detectives noticed that Renee had one earring in her left ear, with the right earring having been ripped out, just like Barbara. Dr. Haberman discovered that the killer raped Renee with a blunt force object that was approximately 10 inches long and one and a half inches around, which resulted in a tear of the vagina. Her other injuries included massive blunt force trauma to the face, resulting in a fractured jaw, nose, and crushing of the tissue, manual strangulation, which fractured her thyroid cartilage, blunt trauma to her right chest and abdomen, causing internal hemorrhage and a fractured rib, blunt force trauma to the right side of the head, multiple bruises and abrasions on her arms and hands, which she sustained while trying to shield herself and fight back multiple stab wounds to her lower neck, and a massive incision to her neck, which severed the trachea, esophagus, and carotid arteries on each side, nearly decapitating her. Without going into detail, Shanna also suffered horrific injuries during the attack, which led to her death. She was also missing an earring, but from her left ear. It appeared the killer liked to keep trophies from his victims. The crime scene was reopened the following morning for continued evidence collection. Detective Herb Oberg dusted everything in the home for fingerprints, including pieces of walls, entire doorknobs, portions of the carpet, and the drinking glass from the kitchen counter, all of which were packaged and booked. The drinking glass, which had an apparent palm print on it, along with several other items, were sent to the FBI for expert analysis. At this point in the investigation, detectives had two leads on possible suspects, both of which were related to Renee's job. It turned out that the man Peggy told detectives about and the man named Pissarro that Renee's boyfriend spoke about were actually the same person. Pissarro was thoroughly investigated and found to be nowhere near the Wickland residence at the time of the murders. There was also no indication that he had ever followed Renee. Pissarro was cleared from having any involvement in the case. Meanwhile, Detective Sergeant Joe Bellink read through the files on Renee's prior sexual assault case. On December 11, 1974, Renee had been home alone with her one-year-old daughter, Shanna. Her husband, Jack, was away on business. At about 1.45 that afternoon, Renee carried Shanna out to the front lawn and set the child down. She noticed a tall man whom she did not recognize, walking up her long driveway. When they made eye contact, the man walked back towards the main road. Renee stepped inside the house to grab a few rags to clean the exterior windows, and when she went back outside, she saw the man running towards her at full sprint. He easily vaulted over a fence at the lawn and bounded towards the house. Renee feared he was going for Shanna, so she ran to her child, scooped her up, and ran back towards the house. Petrified, she tried to slam the front door shut, but it was too late. The man threw his weight against the door, knocking Renee down. He had a knife in his hand and threatened to kill Shanna if Renee did not take off her clothes immediately. Renee, fearing for her child's life, did what the man demanded. He then sexually assaulted Renee as he held the knife to her and Shanna. When the terrifying ordeal was over, the man zipped up his pants, muttered thanks, and left the house. Renee threw on some clothes, grabbed Shanna, and drove the short distance across the road 
to Barbara and Don's house, Barbara later told investigators that Renee was hysterical and Shanna was terrified, sobbing uncontrollably. The suspect in the attack, who was eventually arrested, tried, and convicted of sodomy and assault with a deadly weapon, was Charles Rodman Campbell. Sergeant Bellink found DMV records showing that Campbell owned an orange 1973 Ford Torino, just like the vehicle witnesses saw on the day of the murders. He also studied Campbell's rap sheet and found that he had been sentenced to 30 years in the Monroe Reformatory for his assault on Renee, to be served consecutively with a 15-year sentence for an unrelated burglary for a total of 45 years. However, somehow, he had been placed on a work release program just a few months before the murders, and he had been transferred to a program in Everett, a town only 10 miles away from Renee's house. The sergeant made a call to the Everett Work Release Program to check on Campbell's whereabouts and was told that he had violated the program's rules against drinking and had been sent back to the Monroe Reformatory on the evening of the murders. It seemed like Campbell had an opportunity to commit the murders prior to being sent back to the reformatory and revenge seemed a possible motive. Sergeant Bellick knew he was on the right track but needed more evidence before he could make an arrest. But exactly how was Campbell able to avoid maximum security prison? And how was he allowed to be in a work release program practically unsupervised? After Campbell was convicted for sodomy and assault in 1976, he was sent to the state reformatory in Monroe instead of the maximum security prison at Walla Walla, even though his own mother had written a letter to the state telling them that her son needed more serious rehabilitation, that he had weird ideas about women and severe sexual issues, including the fact that he once molested his dog. In his own response to the state, Campbell denied having sexual relations with his dog, but did admit to killing the family pet. He strangled the dog for not obeying him. And then, astonishingly, even though Campbell had established a reputation at the reformatory for breaking facility rules, getting in fights, using drugs, assaulting staff, and extorting and raping other inmates, the Board of Prison Terms and Paroles set Campbell's minimum time to be served at just seven and a half years. By May of 1981, the parole board ordered Campbell's minimum term to be set aside altogether on account of his good behavior and that he was a model prisoner. He was transferred to a minimum security area called the Honor Farm, just outside the main walls of the reformatory, where he could leave on furloughs. Before long, Campbell was granted transfer to the Monroe Work Release Center, a house in Everett, which allowed him to work outside and leave the premises. And though Campbell often broke the rules, he was given full work release status in January of 1982. Through all of this, Renee Wickland was never informed that her attacker was released from prison, nor that he was living just 10 miles from her and her daughter. Charles Rodman Campbell was born in Oahu, Hawaii on October 21, 1954. His parents, Oliver and Betty Lou, made their way to Hawaii with their baby daughter when Betty Lou was pregnant with Campbell. Oliver, a Polynesian and U.S. Marine, had family in the area who could help with his growing family. Over time, Oliver became a heavy drinker, spending more time in bars than with his wife. Not long after Campbell was born, Oliver was discharged from the Marines and moved his family to the Edmonds area of Washington. By 1957, Oliver and Betty Lou had two more daughters, the last of whom was born with no hip joints and could not walk. Betty Lou became a heavy drinker just like her husband, and the two of them often physically fought. As financial problems mounted, violent fights became more and more common between Oliver and Betty Lou. Campbell was often beaten as well. At five years old, Campbell developed a problem with one of his testicles and had to have it removed. Psychiatrists would later say that the loss of his testicle might have caused him to have an inferiority complex 
with his masculinity. As a result of the violence at home, Campbell spent a lot of time with his grandparents. Unfortunately, that didn't stop him from turning to alcohol and drugs at a young age and having his own issues with violence. He attended four different elementary schools in five years. After eighth grade, he was diagnosed as being behaviorally disordered and put into special education classes at Madrona Junior High School, where he was relentlessly teased for having a disabled sister. At 10 years old, Campbell vandalized a cattle truck, but wasn't prosecuted, beginning a pattern of him slipping through the cracks when it came to punishment. At 12 years old, he started using methamphetamine and began stealing things, and by 13, Campbell was using heroin. By the ninth grade, he had dropped out of school, and by age 17, he'd been convicted for vehicle theft and burglary. Campbell was sentenced to one year in the Greenhill Juvenile Reformatory in Washington, but was released before that year was completed. By the age of 18, Campbell had been arrested for multiple property, drug, and violent offenses, including threatening to kill police officers. In 1973, he was arrested for failing to pay for food at a restaurant in Everett, as well as assaulting the restaurant owner, but was only given a $25 fine, despite his criminal record. Not long after that arrest, Campbell met a woman named Francine, and they married in August of 1973. They lived in a trailer in the backyard of his grandparents' house. Their relationship was volatile from the beginning, and police responded to multiple calls of domestic disturbances during which Francine had been beaten. She eventually filed charges after a particularly bloody altercation, where Campbell dragged her while pregnant out of the house and punched her until she was bleeding from the nose and mouth. He was arrested, released on his own recognizance, and then failed to show up for court when the date came. He was arrested again and only given probation. During this time, Francine gave birth to their daughter. When the baby was a week old, police responded to a complaint that Campbell threatened to throw the baby through a plate glass window. Over the next several months, Francine continued to take beatings and Campbell continued to abuse the baby by dangling her from a 20-foot-high deck and throwing knives at her crib. By August of 1974, Francine divorced Campbell after having been married for less than a year. Four months after the divorce, Campbell attacked Renee for the first time inside of her home. Sergeant Bellink and another detective went to the Everett work release program on April 16th after learning that Campbell had been taken into custody and transported back to the Monroe Reformatory. Tom Cornish, the supervisor at the Everett House, told them how he had checked Campbell's Ford Torino after Campbell had been taken away and that he had confiscated beer cans from inside. Luckily, the Torino was still parked outside. Sergeant Bellink and the other detective looked through the windows and there, in plain sight on the front seat, was a pearl earring. Both detectives likely wondered whether it was a match to one of the victim's earrings. They walked around the car and saw a red substance, possibly blood, on the driver's side door handle. There was also mud all over the underside of the vehicle and on the tires. Sergeant Belling quickly returned to his office and obtained three warrants, one to search the interior of the Torino, one to search Campbell's room at the Everett House, and one to search Campbell's person and cell at the Monroe Reformatory. The Torino was then impounded and searched. Inside of the vehicle, detectives located soiled clothing, a pearl earring, and possible blood on the driver's seat adjustment knob. Detectives searched Campbell and collected the clothing he had been wearing when he was returned to the reformatory, which matched some of the clothing described by witnesses on the day of the murders. They collected blood, saliva, and hair samples from him as well. In addition, the property he had on his person when he was brought back to the reformatory was confiscated and included more jewelry. Jerry Ethington, a friend of Campbell's and a fellow work-release resident, contacted detectives shortly after the murders. Ethington told them that he had been at the Snohomish River with Campbell on the night of the murders. They'd been hanging out at the boat launch, drinking beers, until Campbell told Ethington to stay there. 
He then drove down to the water where it was muddy. Ethington figured Campbell was doing something he didn't want anyone else to see, but he wasn't overly concerned about it, that is, until news of the murders came out the next day. Ethington took detectives to the river, where almost immediately they saw a bracelet in the mud. After a team was called in, more jewelry, clothing, pottery, and a brass wall ornament were located in the water. Detectives now had more than enough evidence to obtain an arrest warrant for Campbell. With a warrant in hand, Detective Rick Bart placed Campbell under arrest on the morning of April 19th at the Monroe Reformatory. He was transported to the Snohomish County Jail in Everett and booked without incident. By the time the trial started, detectives would have a crucial piece of physical evidence connecting Campbell to being inside the Wickland home on the day of the murders. Jury selection began in October of 1982 with the Everett courtroom presided over by Judge Dennis J. Britt. It was quickly realized that the residents of Snohomish County had seen too much media coverage about the murders to remain unbiased. Judge Britt decided to move jury selection to Spokane, nearly 300 miles across the state. Campbell decided he didn't want to make the trip to Spokane. The prosecuting attorneys, Jim Roche and Eric Lind, objected to Campbell not attending the jury selection because it might give him a basis for an appeal down the road. After making sure that Campbell understood his rights and that he was giving them up by his own choice, Judge Britt ultimately allowed Campbell to remain in Everett. In Spokane, a jury of six men and six women, plus three female alternates, were selected. The trial began on November 8th of 1982 in Division 6 on the second floor of the Old Mission Building in Everett. The jury were sequestered in an Everett hotel for the duration of the trial. In the prosecution's opening statement, given by Jim Roche, the murder scene was described in detail and each victim was named. Roche emphasized young Shanna's age. He described Renee, Barbara, and Shanna's injuries in detail. The entire courtroom hung on every word he said, captivated by the account of brutality. Gasps of disbelief from the gallery could be heard as he spoke. Roche mentioned Renee and Barbara testifying against Campbell in 1974. However, the court did not permit Roche to give specifics about the case or to name the charges against Campbell. He described the work release program and Campbell's actions on the day of the murders, including the fact that he never showed up to work and had no alibi on the day of the murders. Roche informed the jury that Campbell's own girlfriend would testify against him. He mentioned the drinking glass found inside Renee's home that had a palm print on it and promised compelling fingerprint testimony from an FBI expert as well as the pathologist who conducted the autopsies. Roche summarized the rest of the evidence and highlighted how every piece would point to Campbell and no one else. He concluded by asking the jury to provide a just verdict. Campbell was represented by defense attorneys Anthony Savage and Mark Mistel. In Savage's opening statement, he told the jury that Campbell was completely innocent and that any evidence presented by the prosecution would prove that someone else committed the murders. He acknowledged that Renee and Barbara testified against Campbell previously, but did not elaborate on that case, only stating that Campbell was in a program working on returning to society. Savage claimed that the sheriff's department was biased because of Campbell's prior criminal record and that they immediately decided he was guilty, never looking for any other possible suspects. Savage reminded the jury that the burden of proof was on the prosecution, but said that the defense would show beyond a reasonable doubt that Campbell was not responsible for the deaths of the victims. The prosecution's case was essentially a parade of witnesses who seemed credible and offered testimony linking Campbell to the murder scene. Renee's sister, Lauren, and her mother, Hilda, positively identified the jewelry found in Campbell's car and on his person as belonging to Renee. They identified pottery and a brass wall ornament found in the river as having been from inside Renee's home. 
neighbors offered detailed descriptions of a man they observed leaving the area of Renee's house on the day of the murders, and those descriptions matched Campbell. One witness, 11-year-old Patty Warner, Shanna's friend and next-door neighbor, gave a detailed description of a man she saw walking around the side of Renee's house. She even picked Campbell out of a lineup as being the man she saw that day. Don Hendrickson, his health clearly deteriorated since his wife's murder, described for the jury finding Barbara's mutilated body. Defense attorney Savage asked very few questions during cross-examinations of these witnesses and often did not question them at all. Detectives, deputies, and firemen testified as to what they witnessed at the crime scene or their part in the investigation. The defense, again, had no questions or objections for most of them. Dr. Haberman testified as to the gruesome injuries he found during the autopsies. During cross-examination, the defense called into question Dr. Haberman's assertion that Renee had been raped. They argued that since the doctor could not prove that the rape happened before she died, then this finding did not apply because a dead person could not be raped. In a decision that shocked many people, Judge Britt ruled in favor of the defense and the jury had to disregard the rape allegation. The prosecution had been waiting to drop a bomb on the courtroom and it came in the form of testimony from an FBI fingerprint expert. The FBI agent testified that he examined a palm print on the glass found on the countertop in Renee's kitchen. The prints were of excellent quality and he found 15 matching points of comparison to Campbell's prints. The minimum standard for positive identification was eight points of comparison. Therefore, the palm print could belong to no one other than Campbell. The defense spent a lot of time hammering the FBI expert with procedural questions, trying to poke holes in his processes, but they would have to wait for a verdict from the jury to find out how successful they were. Who doesn't love a good mystery and trying your hand at solving it? I recently got a new game called Echoes, an audio mystery game by Ravensburger. To play Echoes, you use an app to wave your phone over a deck of illustrated cards. When you do this, you get spine-tingling clues to help you solve the mystery. There are unique sound clues on each card, like the sound of breaking glass, a portion of a conversation, or even the sound of a gun firing. My family and I have been playing Echoes the Dancer, in which the ghost of a young girl haunts a stately Scottish manor. We can listen to snippets of her past life to try to solve her death. The game is really fun and totally plays into my fascination with crime and figuring out what happened. Anywhere from one to six players can play Echoes and it's appropriate for ages 14 and up. There are various Echo stories you can get for only $9.99. Find Echoes on Amazon, in Target, and local game stores, and then see if you can solve the mystery of the dancer and finally set her spirit to rest. Recently, I've challenged myself to decrease the amount of time I spend doom scrolling on social media. Instead, I pick up my phone and play Best Fiends during my spare time. Best Fiends is a really fun and brain-stimulating casual puzzle game that you can play on your smartphone and you don't need data or Wi-Fi. What I really like about playing Best Fiends is that it's fun and entertaining, just like scrolling through social media, but it's also challenging. When I'm done playing, I feel like my brain just got a good workout and I don't feel guilty about the time I spent. Playing Best Fiends is more like me time, and every one of us deserves that. You'll never get bored playing Best Fiends because there are literally thousands of puzzles and new ones are being added constantly. The game is really hard to put down. I tend to lose track of time when I'm playing because I'm so hell-bent on advancing through each level. I've also found myself a little attached to the cute characters in the game, like Vincent the Moth, He's noisy and fearless and so adorable. If you're looking for a new challenge, download Best Fiends free today and start collecting all of the cute characters while you exercise your brain. 
I dare you to try it, and I triple dog dare you to put the game down. It's nearly impossible. Download the five-star rated puzzle game Best Fiends free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. Judith Dirks, Campbell's fiancé and mother of his son, also testified for the prosecution. Dirks, a former nun, met Campbell at the Monroe Reformatory, where she had been his drug and alcohol counselor. She quit her job after the two started a relationship, and she eventually sponsored Campbell on furloughs when he was placed on work release. Dirks told the jury about Campbell's deep resentment towards Renee and Barbara for sending him to prison. She testified that he expressed wanting to make the women feel what he had felt in prison. She told them that Campbell had gotten transcripts from the trial that showed Renee's address, and then he began stalking her. She said that one time, he concealed himself behind some trees and watched Renee bring groceries into the house. Shockingly, Dirks never mentioned any of this disturbing behavior to authorities. If she had, people wonder whether the gruesome crime would have been avoided. Dirks also testified that Campbell showed up to her house on the morning of the murders, alone and intoxicated. He mentioned wanting new tires for his Torino and needed to use her phone to make some calls. Dirks went to work, leaving Campbell in the house alone. She realized the next day that one of her large kitchen knives was missing. The knife was never located. What came next was a move that surprised everyone. Campbell cross-examined Dirks himself. The defendant had Dirks give the dimensions of the missing kitchen knife and got her to admit that he never specifically said he wanted to hurt Renee or Barbara. A friend of both Campbell and Dirks testified that Campbell showed up to her house alone on the morning of the murders, intoxicated, and attempted to rape her. She begged him to stop, and fortunately, he did. Afterwards, while she was washing a knife at the sink, Campbell told her to slit his throat because he was no good. The defense chose not to cross-examine her. Jerry Ethington testified about going to the Snohomish River with Campbell on the night of the murders. He described how Campbell showed up at the Everett house in the evening, acting excited and nervous. Campbell took a shower before they left for the river, which was odd because he rarely bathed. Campbell grabbed a bundle of clothing to take with him, and then he drove them in his Torino to the boat launch. It wasn't until after hearing about the murders that Ethington realized Campbell could have hidden evidence inside of that bundle of clothing and tossed it into the river while he was alone. On cross-examination, defense attorney Savage questioned Ethington at length, attempting to show that he was unreliable and that he could have just as easily been inside Renee's house or been the one to dispose of evidence in the river. On redirect, however, the prosecution showed that Ethington had an alibi, and they reminded the jury that Ethington did not match the description of the suspect, nor was his palm print found inside of Renee's home. The prosecution presented their case over the course of 11 days. On day 12, the defense spent the next two days questioning the opposing side's witnesses. However, it seemed like they were unable to contradict any of the witnesses' previous testimony. On day 13, the defense attempted to call a forensic scientist to refute the FBI expert's testimony. Judge Britt, however, did not find him to be credible and would not allow him to testify. The defense then called a second expert whose testimony was easily refuted on redirect from the prosecution. The only witness left for the defense to call was Campbell himself, but he chose not to testify. The defense then rested their case. On the morning of November 23rd, the jury took a trip to the crime scene. After their return that afternoon, the prosecution chose not to present a rebuttal case. Closing arguments took place on November 26th, and by 3.45 that afternoon, the jury were sent to deliberate. After two hours and 39 minutes of deliberation, the jury had reached a verdict. At 6.15 p.m., Judge Britt was notified that the jury had come to a decision, and it was unanimous. 
Charles Rodman Campbell was found guilty on three counts of first-degree aggravated murder. After the verdict was read aloud, Campbell sat unemotional and just smiled. A jury member later told detectives that the evidence against Campbell was overwhelming, that a blind person could have followed the trail he left behind. Sentencing hearings began on November 29th, at which Prosecutor Roche called several family members to tell the jury about how the vicious murder of their loved ones affected them. Nobody spoke on behalf of Campbell during the sentencing phase. The next afternoon, on November 30th, the jury sentenced Campbell to death for his crimes. Campbell once again sat in silence, with a grin across his face. He was sent to Walla Walla State Penitentiary, where he spent 23 hours a day inside of his small cell. Everybody involved in the case knew that the next several years would be spent fighting appeals because Campbell was sentenced to death. However, no one imagined just how long the process would drag on. After being sentenced, Campbell made appeal after appeal, trying to get his conviction thrown out based on claims of legal mistakes. But the courts upheld his conviction and death sentence in 1984, 1986, and 1987. In 1988, Campbell was scheduled to be executed. However, an appellate court issued a stay of execution. The stay was lifted the following year in 1989, and the execution was set for March of that year. Campbell, realizing he was not going to win an appeal on his conviction, began fighting the validity of his death sentence. In Washington at that time, a person sentenced to death had to choose lethal injection or hanging. If no choice was made, the default was death by hanging. Campbell appealed on the basis that making him choose how he would die was the same as forcing him to die by suicide, which was a violation of the Constitution. Campbell's appeal was denied. He then appealed on the basis that hanging was cruel and unusual punishment, a violation of the Constitution. That appeal was also denied. Two days before he was to be executed, an appellate court granted him a stay of execution pending an appeal on the same grounds the courts had just denied him. Two years later, in 1991, the courts issued another ruling to delay the execution. This continued through 1993, working its way up to the U.S. Supreme Court for the third time. The High Court instructed the Appellate Court to cease with their delays and make a decision. Finally, on February 8, 1994, the courts ruled that hanging did not constitute cruel and unusual punishment, and forcing Campbell to choose the manner by which he would die was not a violation of his constitutional rights. They ordered that the stay of execution be lifted. On April 15, 1994, 12 years and one day after the murders, the stay was finally lifted. Campbell was scheduled to be executed on May 27, 1994. Campbell never did make a decision between lethal injection or hanging, so by default, he was headed to the gallows. The night before his execution, Campbell refused to choose a last meal or to eat at all. Supporters of the death penalty gathered outside the prison with signs of support for his execution, with some wearing t-shirts that read, Hang in there, Campbell. Those who opposed the execution stood with lit candles and prayed for the governor to intervene. When it came time to move Campbell to a holding cell near the gallows, he refused to cooperate. Instead of standing and submitting to handcuffing, he assumed the fetal position on the floor of his cell and refused to move. Prison guards had to use pepper spray to get him to comply. When it was nearing midnight, staff came to Campbell's holding cell to usher him to his execution, but he resisted again. He went limp and refused to walk, so guards strapped him to a board and carried him there. In a final act of defiance, when a guard tried to put the hood over Campbell's head, he kept moving his head just outside of reach. Campbell never spoke a single word during the process and did not give a final statement to the witnesses seated in the viewing chamber. Seventeen people, mostly media, sat ready to see Campbell executed. Renee and Barbara's families had to fight for their spots in the viewing chamber, behind the translucent screen in front of them. 
the witnesses could only see shadows as the noose was placed around Campbell's neck. And then, a loud thud echoed as the trap door was opened, and Campbell's body became visible through a lower window. His falling body dropped to an abrupt stop. They watched as he swayed at the end of the rope, donned in an orange jumpsuit and slippers. Campbell was pronounced dead at 12.14 in the morning on May 27, 1994. It was finally over. A civil lawsuit against the state of Washington was filed by Hilda Ehlers and Don Hendrickson for failing to notify Renee about Campbell's work release status and the fact that he was living so close to her. Their total settlement award was over $2 million. Shanna's school, Cathcart Elementary, placed a memorial plaque next to an oak tree in her honor. Renee and Shanna were laid to rest in North Dakota next to Renee's father and later her mother in 2005. Don Hendrickson spent several years working with an organization called Families and Friends of Missing Persons and Violent Crime Victims. He married and divorced a woman he met there and unfortunately became a heavy drinker before passing away due to alcohol-related health issues in 1999. Don was never the same after he witnessed such a brutal crime scene and found his wife dead. He was buried next to his beloved Barbara in Linwood, Washington. As a direct result of Renee's sexual assault in 1974, she and Jack Wickland divorced a few years later. The feelings of guilt and the emotional toll had been too much for the couple to endure. Jack moved out and lived a separate life in another town. In December of 1977, Jack became the victim of his own bizarre, random attack when a stranger entered his home, tied him to a kitchen chair, poured gasoline all over his body, and then lit him on fire. Jack was badly burned over his entire body, yet another example of the ripple effects caused by Campbell's initial attack on Renee. Jack Wickland died in April of 1978 when the vehicle he was driving mysteriously crashed into a tree, killing him instantly. A probe into the Washington Parole Board following the murders revealed that thousands of inmates between 1977 and 1980 might have been paroled without the board having full, accurate reports of the inmates' conduct while behind bars. They claimed filing errors and miscommunication were to blame. The parole board chairman later admitted that though it's difficult to say what would have happened to Campbell if they had been given the information about his negative conduct, it was likely that his mandatory prison term would have never been waived in the first place. Renee Wicklin was never given a chance to protect herself. Had she been aware of Campbell's status, she could have taken steps to keep herself and her young daughter safe. Equally alarming is the fact that Campbell, despite his previous violent crimes, was even allowed to be in a position where he could commit the brutal murders. Due to the tenacity of Renee's mother, who fought for the rights of victims just like her daughter, perhaps the future would be different. When all was said and done, Washington State passed laws requiring that victims, their families, and witnesses be notified whenever an inmate is released or escapes from custody. Though Renee, Shanna, and Barbara are gone, their death sparked changes to the legal system that may very well have saved lives and will continue to do so. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Murderish. Don't forget to follow my new podcast, Judgy and Juryish. It's available wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out Murderish.com if you want to buy Murderish merch like t-shirts, face masks, and more. If you can't get enough Murderish, subscribe to our Patreon service to get immediate access to bonus content only available to Patreon subscribers. There's a link to go behind the scenes and become a Patreon subscriber at Murderish.com. Thank you, Jillian, for becoming a Patreon subscriber. I really appreciate you. If you haven't joined the Murderish Facebook discussion group, do it. We have so much fun in there. You can also find me on Instagram at Murderish Podcast and on Twitter at Murderish Pod. If you'd like to support the show in other ways, 
tell a friend about Murderish, or write a review in your favorite podcast app. Murderish is mixed and mastered by John and Jessica Buchanan of Audio Editing Solutions. Music is by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched and written by Gina Mazzolini. Stick around after the closing music to hear a list of sources used for this episode. As always, Ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast does not make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. Sources for this episode include an article found at wikipedia.org dated July 15, 2021, a 2021 article found at bestplaces.net, a true crime edition article dated May 28, 2020 by Lori Johnston at medium.com, a book titled Savage Vengeance by Gary C. King and Don Lassiter, an article in the News Tribune Tacoma, Washington dated May 22, 1994, by Doreen Marciani, a book titled Without Pity, Anne Rule's Most Dangerous Killers by Anne Rule, an article found in the Kitsap Sun by an unknown author dated May 22, 1994.